Stranger Things has taken over the internet and we... How, how would you do the music, Brandon? You know what's funny? We already did an intro tag with the Stranger Things theme. I think I'm just going to make that again and no one can stop me because I edit these. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of Plot Devices. All 31 flavors of the show are here at your disposal. Yes, I finally went back to the number jokes. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you on this day? Our 31st episode is here. You got 31 flavors in that ice cream eatery, all of which are less than the superior cookies and cream. I'm happy to be here, Brandon. We have an exciting list of topics to discuss for today's episode, and I'm attacking it with so much energy. It is going to be, I almost said thunderstruck, but that would not have been applicable. I will try again later in the episode, ladies and gentlemen. You have a great thunder in your heart. Absolutely. We should hop into our show, because this is actually going to be one of our tighter episodes in a while. We actually made a conscious choice to condense the show, so hopefully that'll be a good experience for you guys. We've got a lot of Chris Hemsworth talk coming up, a lot of Joseph Kaczynski talk coming up, a lot of big things. First and foremost, we just wanted to quickly address another icon of the industry who been uh, lost for the last couple of weeks, the legendary James Caan, of course, uh, the Oscar winner for his role as Sonny Corleone in The Godfather, among many, many other projects. Uh, Brian Song, Elf, um, Oh, God, there's so many other... Uh, Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's first movie, he was the villain in that. Uh, the Claudio Chance of Meatballs movie was, his, was a big voice debut for him. He has had an incredibly prolific career, passed away uh, this past week at the age of 82. Khan was known as sort of the gritty uh, character actor with a heart of gold. He made, again, a name for himself as far as The Godfather goes, but he was really able to really diversify his material. He took a lot of time off for acting a while to just kind of take care of his family. And, you know, a really key figure in the rise of 70s and uh rise of 70s and 80s hollywood i should say and again just prolific career all around so of course condolences to his uh to his family and friends uh he was actually supposed to reunite with francis ford coppola one more time on uh, megapolis which was the director's next movie that i don't know if that will happen now i wasn't sure if he had signed on but even so there was still clearly love for that collaborating team in there that you know won the oscar so many years ago noah over to you uh james con real quick any just quick thoughts on the uh, on the legend I'm incredibly thankful for his work in introducing me or being introduced to him alongside uh, Will Ferrell. I'm not sure if it was my first Will Ferrell project, but I grew up with Elf. That was always the holiday movie for me. And, um, you know, looking back to those who have passed in the industry, who we want to pay our respects to, uh, definitely have to mention those who have, impact, who have impacted our interest in the industry. And so Elf was one of those holiday movies that I uh, couldn't take my eyes off the screen for. And he definitely contributed to that. And as we say every time, go and watch their movies, go and watch their work. That's how they live on. And all the tributes have been pouring in. Go check out James Conn's work and rest of these, obviously. Let's move on to our bigger topics for the day. Pretty much all of the topics we are covering today are big topics. Uh, but this might be the biggest, and that it counts for a billion reasons. As you may know, uh, the pandemic box office has been weird to track. Like, there's just no predicting it anymore. So when Spider-Man No Way Home became the first pandemic film to cross a billion, given what that movie was, it made some sense. But now it has a friend. Top Gun Maverick has officially grossed a billion dollars after six weeks in release in theaters. Uh, it is set to come out in Paramount Plus, I believe, in early September. So you won't have to wait that long if you still haven't seen it by this point. Uh, it becomes the 50th movie to cross the billion dollar mark. The first film of Tom Cruise's career to cross a billion, which seems ridiculous, but be that as it may. Box office analysts have contributed at least some of that success 
to the over 35 age range demographic who haven't necessarily flocked back to theaters post-vaccine availability. There have been more younger audiences, uh, certain older audiences flocked, but the kind of, you know, mid-range adult demographics have not necessarily flocked back. This became a huge hit for that audiences for a variety of reasons, but also because, you know, general word of mouth and the star power of Tom Cruise. A lot of things have been attributed to this. Noah, what would you attribute to the reasons for Top Gun Maverick being so successful? Because we knew it was going to make money. We knew it would have a fan base. But this amount of it, what did you think? Are you kidding me? The movie that didn't even make my most anticipated? I'd never even seen the original. You're telling me this is the second film of the pandemic to gross $1 billion. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it when I read it, but it's true. And I think I'm not, I'm not feeling any type of way other than like appreciation and I guess respect to the title because Top Gun Maverick truly was like, a film that I did not see myself enjoying. And then I sat through it and was just cheerful the whole time, a joyous for our character story and excited for the film's conclusion. Uh, it does not surprise me. I think for any fan to come at this from a new perspective and walk away, loving it. It's it has that sort of uh, takeaway. Um, it's going to be joining Spider-Man No Way Home, which is expected, I think. I was looking for comic book titles or other really heavy action thrillers that would have uh, banked like internationally, overseas. And the fact that it's Tom Cruise's first, another surprising detail. Um, but no, this is astounding. I think that, uh, it, you know, what does it really communicate? Does it communicate that, you know, we are seeing a return to theaters? Does it communicate that uh, some of these alternate, you know, uh, releasing strategies aren't making the most money. Like there's probably some kind of in-depth industry pull apart that you can do here. But as far as we can speak on it, I think that it's well-deserved and, and I respect the work here done on Maverick. Neither of us are box office analysts, like the people who go over these week to week, but at, least, at the very least, you and I can at least attest to like our own fan bases and our own, um, our experiences in the world of film fandom. I, I think it was the same for you, for me. Everyone has been buzzing about this. Even the, you know, People like me who will call out some of the film's flaws, like even we love the hell out of this movie. Like it's just universally beloved. It you know plays well in IMAX and 3D screens. It's it's a movie that has universal appeal in terms of its characters, and it's got Tom Cruise doing what Tom Cruise does. And I think that kind of lightning in a bottle appeal just really made it the thing to go see this summer, let alone overseas too. It, I, I think that it's almost a 60-40 split between domestic and overseas, which is staggering. And then even going back to that detail, like it's the first movie in a long career for Tom Cruise that's made a billion dollars, which is ridiculous. I also want to mention that it's its partner, you know, its neighbor in Spider-Man No Way Home. That movie is so, I guess, like a lot of that movie has to be done in post-production. I think that, like there's so much work done here in Top Gun Maverick that is just appreciation or value taken straight from the performances, from the cinematography and additional technical elements that make this an even more impressive milestone to reach. Even if you look at, you know, beyond Tom Cruise, like this, a billion dollars, especially in a pandemic, like this is only the 50th movie. There's only been 50 movies ever that have grossed a billion dollars. This will increase the uh, the reputability of obviously Tom Cruise, but everyone in the cast aside from him. I hope Miles Teller and Glenn Powell and the whole cast really get more opportunities after this. Joseph Kaczynski, who has for a long time really been grinding himself on big budget filmmaking, now has the dollar amount to reward himself for it. Both films have a leading actor with the first name Tom. I'm waiting. <laughs> That's true. I'm waiting to see what the next big picture headlining a, a Tom actor 
will will show us at the box office. But kudos to Top Gun Maverick. Tom Hardy or Tom Hiddleston? I'll take Hardy. I would also take Hardy. Um, let's move on for and again, just big congrats to Top Gun. And you know, if you haven't seen it yet, go see it on Paramount Plus when it comes out. Let's move on to our next big topic for the day. Uh, Stranger Things has taken over the internet and we how how would you do the music Brandon (laughs) you know what's funny we already did an intro tag with the Stranger Things theme I think I'm just going to make that again and no one can stop me because I edit these that's right um whoever you're talking to Brandon (laughs) (laughs) okay well needless to say Stranger Things has taken over our lives, as it has many, and we will hopefully get to the back half of season uh, four of volume one, plus season four of volume two, eventually, whenever we do. But the Duffer brothers, Matt and Ross Duffer, who of course, you know, gifted us the series, they made a massive deal with Netflix back in 2019. Plans were in the works for a lot of different projects. Now we have an idea of just what some of those will be. Uh, this is from a recent article, I believe, from The Hollywood Reporter. I did not actually say this, and I will confirm it later. Uh, in addition to season five of Stranger Things, which is already greenlit and which will be the final season coming out supposedly in 2024, a currently unknown spinoff is in the works, which the brothers say they hope will be run by other showrunners. Uh, they will still be involved. It's based on a story by them, but they just won't showrun the thing. Other projects in the works. This was the new piece of information. Uh, an adaptation of Stephen King and Peter Straub's The Talisman, which was actually featured in season four. Uh, an unknown series from the writers of uh, Netflix's The Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance series, which I have not watched, but I heard it's amazing. And probably most significant at all, a new series adaptation of Sugumi Oda's Death Note manga, which, of course, got a live action adaptation in Netflix before, went how it went. But now the Duffer Brothers are trying it again. All of these will be produced under the Brothers' new Upside Down Pictures banner with the Stranger Things spinoff in, uh, in set for production at the earliest by 2024 as well. Noah, over to you. This is a lot, uh, even for the Duffer standards. And obviously, they won't be running all of these. We've got the guys from Dark Crystal. You know, there will be other people involved in this. But still, it's a testament to how it's a testament to how much Ted Sarandos and Netflix really have faith in these guys and what their vision is. What stands out to you from all this? After the, you know, heavy journey into the upside down that we've gotten from the later from the later seasons of stranger things i think this is wonderful because i'm looking forward to that that horrific dark atmosphere that they pulled off so they executed it so beautifully in stranger things and actually i've gotten to that back half of season four brandon and you have so much to look forward to um i cannot wait till we get into that conversation. But until then, um, this really just perks my ears. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited to see new projects from the Duffer Brothers. I think Stranger Things is a treat when we got it back whenever we did. And although the show, I think, did kind of have like a roller coaster ride for me and my interest, season four definitely roped me back in and has got me interested in whatever these brothers want to touch in the future. If that's a Death Note series, then um, I'm a fan of the... Uh, just, I guess, the core concept itself, because I have not finished the original anime. Uh, I've started it, though, okay? I'm like a mid-grade anime fan. Um, and then the Stranger Things spinoff, you know, show me more of the Upside Down. Show me more of this dimension that you've created and and what has inspired you and how can that leak into your other projects. Uh, the, the practical effects that they pull off in season four, I mean, there's so much to look forward to here. I'm going to be cheering them along the entire way. Um, I hope you feel the same. I mean, you aren't a fan of horror. You know, we've covered that. We've said it. It's tired. It's it's tried. It's true. But how would you feel about a Death Note adaptation from these two? First of all, I do want to say I have caught up fully on Stranger Things. Uh, Yeah. 
And from everything you're saying, uh, yeah, we have too much to discuss. Uh, that being said, as far as Death Note, that was the one that stuck out to me because Netflix did already try it with, um, I believe Adam Wingard directed that. Um, I could have sworn it was him, but obviously with Willem Dafoe and Nat Wolf and all the whitewashing controversy, that movie did what it did. And what it did was not a lot. Uh, but the actual manga and the anime have legions of fans who I'm sure would be at least curious to see something like this, even if they are looking at the Duffer Brothers as, you know, if you read the interview quotes with them, it's very much along the lines of like, we want to make, you know, projects, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but we want to make projects, things like, like, we grew up feeling insightful and, and uh, excited for like things that valued heart over cynicism, I think their wording was. And that's interesting. And like, I give them credit for that. And I think you and I are both on the same page of like, we like that approach to the Duffers material that we've seen from. Not everyone is. I certainly have had issues with Stranger Things for what it is, but at the same time, I think their creativity can really overflow. And I think their creativity can really overflow and also help get other creators involved with this. I hope Death Note isn't handled by them. I hope they do get someone who has more of like a definitive, uh, a definitive horror and dark kind of twisted background. I know the Duffers have a background in horror, but I hope they get someone else for it. Um, the Dark Crystal team, I hope, gets more efforts. I wanted to get more Dark Crystal stuff because I heard it was great, but whatever. Um, Stephen King is Stephen King. But let's get to the big meat of this. Buried, of course, in this is the news that the spinoff is coming first. Few spoilers for season four as we can get. What would you like to see that spinoff focus on? The world has only gotten bigger. The Stranger Things lore and the universe itself has only expanded at the closing of season four. So... I mean, the world is their oyster. I have no idea what to relate this to, right? Because it can really truly be anything, you know, like the, um, another story of not Hawkins, but a separate city that had been impacted by the upside down. Um, a, you know, a, sci- a, a scientist who's investigating some of, some of the openings that occur in the real world. I mean, more creatures and more entities that exist in the upside down and why they're there, how long they've been there. What is the story of this place and how can you turn it into something new, something fresh? Um, I truly have no idea where they can take the story, Brandon, because of the available paths. What do you have in mind? I think the obvious route is to go before Stranger Things. And the problem with that is that Stranger Things season one kind of sets up everything Like, there isn't really the sense of supernatural before that. So, like, I've heard, you know, oh, do Young Hopper or, you know, Young Murray. And, like, those are cool. But, like, you take away the thing of them discovering the Upside Down and that becomes less interesting. Do you want to see the Upside Down and its place, its impact in the modern day or even future settings? I think I would in that I would like to. Depending on how season five goes, because again, we have no idea how that. No idea. No idea. And I think specifically season five, because the Duffers have kind of teased like, oh, we know what the last 30 minutes of Stranger Things are going to be. So I think that will give us the biggest hint of whatever the spinoff will be. Personally, I have an idea for it, but it gets very spoilery into season four. So I can't really describe it. Let's just say it's around a certain character and how they interact with certain things regarding the Upside Down at a certain point in time. I know that sounds super vague, but I'll tell you off camera. As well as that Death Note adaptation, as long as it remains representative of the original manga, then I think fans have something great to look forward to. I really hope it's not butchered or, you know, criticized uh, for the reasons that the Netflix film was. I I think Willem Dafoe is a standout of the Netflix adaptation, but other than that, it's not worth a rewatch. 
On the one hand, I would love for Willem Dafoe to come back because I heard he was the one good part of that movie. On the other hand, cast Asian actors, it's not that hard. Let's move on to our third and final main topic for today. Avatar Fever is coming back. And yes, I mean, The Last Airbender, we'll be talking about that last show, go listen to that. Uh, but of course, Avatar James Cameron's version, Avatar 2 is coming out this December. We're all looking forward to it to varying degrees. But James Cameron himself has been basically working on this franchise for the last 10 years. He'll probably be working on it for another 10. And I think he's realized it's a lot to chew off of for one franchise. So much so that he recently said he hopes the fourth and fifth movie, which haven't shot yet, are directed by other directors. This is an interview from James Cameron, uh, an interview with Empire. Quote, the Avatar films themselves are kind of all-consuming. I've got some other things I'm developing that are really exciting. I think eventually over time, I don't know if that's after three or after four, I want to pass the baton to a director that I trust to take over so that I can, so that I can go do other stuff that I'm excited in. Or maybe not. I don't know. I got more excited as it went along. Movie four is a corker. It's a mother effer. I'm not going to say that on the show. Uh, I actually hope to get, I get to make it, but it depends on the market forces. Three is in the can, uh, so it's coming out regardless. I really hope we get to make four and five because it's one big story ultimately. Uh, as I already mentioned, Avatar 2 is set for release this December. Avatars 3, 4, and 5 are set every December for the next two years, so we are set for that. But Avatar 2 and 3 have already shot, so uh, 4 and 5 have not been shot. That's why Cameron is talking about this. Noah, over to you real quick. Um, I think we first heard that James Cameron was going to be tackling all four Avatar sequels. We all kind of went, well, good luck with you. Do you think this is the right move for him to step back and work on other things, or should he see this vision through? Initially, I have to laugh. This is a hilarious piece of news it's to me. Funny. Because when we talk about Avatar, I think it's kind of like, uh, it just it's such a funny conversation topic because of how long it has persisted even though we have not seen additional material up until this year. And so to be, to have this be at one of the headlines that we're covering with James Cameron, you know, in an interview stating that he is questioning whether he wants to pass the baton to another director for four and five, it, it kind of makes me feel as though this is his, he's got his hold on Pandora and our time with the Navi. And if he were to leave, all I can see is it being tainted by another director. All I can see is like, unfortunately, I can't see like the Sam Raimi multiverse of madness approach where we get another director and it's just their stylistic spin on it and we still enjoy it. Unfortunately, my mind is sort of pessimistic with production details. And I believe that possibly if Cameron was to step out of the director's chair, the franchise would be at a loss. But this is so far down the road that I think all it is is kind of, it's a, it's hearsay, right? So I I really want Cameron to remain there. I want this to be something that Cameron takes on and eats all of it. Um, if he shares it, that's going to be quite a, you know, quite a call out. This is just really, res really respectful to maybe up and coming directors or respectful is the wrong word. You know, this is very inspiring. You know, who, what if you are that director that takes on Avatar 4 and 5 and it solidifies your place in the entertainment industry for decades to come? It's interesting because Avatar 2 and 3, for as long as in development as they were, they didn't start shooting until 2017. We're getting Avatar 2 now in 2022, so that's a five-year gap. Now, granted, that 2017 start time was also when they were developing all the preliminary effects. They were getting all the you know motion capture stuff set, so that would probably not take nearly as much time. But Avatar 4 is only four years away. And most blockbusters do that, and Avatar is not most blockbusters. So if he doesn't want to direct this, he kind of has to decide in the next year at the very latest. Going back to that point of should he or shouldn't he, I kind of think he should. 
if for no other reason than James Cameron is, you know, for whatever you want to say about him, for his gimmicks, for his eccentricities, for the stupid stuff that he will sometimes say to the press, he is kind of a genius, or at the very least, he knows how to prepare stories that audiences want and develop them and harness them to their fullest potential. It's the reason why, you know, there's the joke of like, oh, James Cameron will go exploring in the seas for 10 years, go back and make a billion dollars and then go do it all over again. Like, there's a reason for that. So I think I would like him to, you know, step back and keep four and five to someone else. I do actually have one name in mind, though. Um, and it's not a name that most people would love, but I think it would be interesting. Robert Rodriguez, because... My Kids Director Returns... He's kind of a disciple of James Cameron in that whole like visual effects space. He's worked with him before on different projects. Obviously, Book of Boba Fett showed him to be like really, maybe in over his head, but like really appreciative, like, you know, big budget franchise making. I think Cameron could, co- could totally look to a guy like Rodriguez and go, you, like, you know how to build a structure and set up for a feature film. Take this story and go with it. I think it could easily be him. I don't know why I let myself believe that he would step away from it entirely. If he hands over that baton, you know, he's still listed executive producer. He's still listed, you know, assistant director. Like there is no way Cameron would let his hands off of his baby. So um, I absolutely trust his, his decisions. And as we get closer to that fifth avatar film, I just, I really just want to see more, like hurry up and get us to Avatar 2 Way of the Water. It is important for fans, I think, to remain interested in Cameron if he has a five-part like epic on the way, but let's get there. And again, as he says, just to wrap that up, like three is in the can, four is not shot yet. So if two comes out and the reaction is universally negative, well, what happens for three? What happens for the interest in making four and five? Like, I don't think it's as, you know, high caliber interest as Cameron seems to think it is. But again, who knows that James Cameron? We are going into now the quick hits portion of the episode where we discuss any of our news topics for one minute each that we didn't feel we had time for in our main news segment. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and refer to the time. Okay, and I'm going to begin in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and especially those who have a particular interest in horror. I am introducing you to a new horror title that we just got a trailer for. It is titled Barbarian. It is starring Bill Skarsgård and Georgina Campbell. Bill Skarsgård, of course, playing Pennywise from It, as well as Georgina Campbell in my favorite episode of Black Mirror that is Hang the DJ. We are getting them both in this um, nightmare Airbnb thriller horror where we have two characters, one in... Oh my gosh, I'm not going to name their names. We have Campbell going into an Airbnb where Starsguard is already staying and they agree to have sort of a, you know, mutual understanding that they'll both respect each other's spaces, sleep in separate rooms, except in the middle of the night, Campbell's locked door opens and she discovers a hidden path in her basement that then leads to like this like sort of prison. I don't know. It looks trippy. It looks freaky. Check out the trailer. It is coming from director Zach Kreger. And that is time for me. I'm excited for a new horror. I'm excited to see Campbell and Skarsgård on screen together. And just the core concept of exploring what lies beneath, you know, we saw it in Parasite. We see it in plenty of other pictures, but what kind of, you know, fresh ideas can we explore here? I think there's something cool to look forward to everybody. I'll admit, like, seeing Bill Skarsgård constantly venture out into weird things after it, it's kind of cool to see as a career path. Absolutely. Over to you for your quick hit. In three, two. So, in 2019, John Williams, of course, legendary film composer and one of my personal idols, said Rise of Skywalker might be his last one with Star Wars. But we were all very sad. But then we were happy when he came back to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Now we're sad again, because apparently John Williams might be rounding down his uh, film scoring career in its entirety. 
This is an interview from John Williams and exclusive with the, with the Associated Press. Quote, I'm at the moment working on Indiana Jones 5, slated for 2023, with Harrison Ford, who's quite a bit younger than I am. I think he's also announced that this will be his last film, so I thought if Harrison can do it, then perhaps I can also do it as well. Uh, Williams is also working at the moment on another Steven Spielberg project. I know Indiana Jones 5 is not Steven Spielberg, it basically is, shut up. Uh, he's working on The Fableman, Spielberg's kind of autobiographical self-take coming out this year, but after that in Indiana Jones 5, he is done. Uh, Williams is, of course, known as one of the greatest film composers of all time. He's received five Oscars. He's the most nominated Oscar nominee after Walt Disney. 52 nominations, uh, six Emmys, 71 Grammys. The numbers speak for themselves. Again, he's one of my personal idols. I could not say enough good things about him and time, and I hope he has a good retirement. Brandon, John Williams. I'm going to refer to Star Wars tracks that I'm familiar with. I mean, we'll throw in, he did Harry Potter, correct? Yeah. So, he did yeah. the Hedwig's Hedwig theme. Harry Potters? I think. I think it's Hedwig's theme. Yep. And there's, don't tell me he did Pirates, did he? No, you're thinking Hans Zimmer. Okay. So Hedwig's theme, um, Duel of yep. Duel of Fates. Hero, Duel of Fates and Battle of Heroes. I, I mean, that's why I only wanted to do the two Star Wars one, because they're like in the same universe. So you know what? Drop Hedwig's theme. I love you, Hedwig. Sorry, RIP. And Duel again, of Fate it, oh, go ahead. or Battle of the Heroes. It's gotta be Duel of the Fates. I mean, that that crescendo at the end is just perfect. Oh, and I mean, again, I will stand by this and we'll move on. If that was just his filmography, he would already be a legend. And that's like a 5% of his filmography. We are going to introduce our quick hits into social media. I'm always, you know, trying to think creatively, be creative. And so I think that posting our quick hits, they're only about a minute or maybe a little bit longer if we go into overtime. Who's counting? Not just my computer. So I'm going to post those on TikTok and Instagram Reels. Let us know what you think. If it's something you want to see more of, if you want us to get um, recordings of other pieces of our show, I'm more than happy to press record and send that out to y'all. We're moving on to Spiderhead, the newest project from, oh, look, it's our friend Joseph Kaczynski, who just made a billion dollars with Top Gun Maverick. And he has another movie out now on Netflix with Chris Hemsworth, who's not in anything else this week. Noah, tell us about Spiderhead. So Spiderhead is going to be based off of a George Saunders collection of stories. It is a book titled 10th of December and is, like I said, compiled of stories where the original title is Escape from Spiderhead. And I think that's an interesting point when we look at this adaptation, which is only titled Spiderhead. So what is it? The film, I think, is a close, intimate story on one subject incarcerated in this facility that he recognizes has different rooms, but has a centralized like control chamber Hence, you know, the name Spiderhead and all of the spider legs are like the individual rooms that these tests are going on in. So what are these tests? So you can get the vibe, you can get the sense that there is some kind of pharmaceutical study going on as our primary focus is in Jeff, played by Miles Teller, who we just mentioned for the Top Gun Maverick milestone. Uh, but Jeff is a subject here uh, undergoing tests performed by Abnesti, played by Chris Hemsworth, and Verlaine, played by Mark Puglio, as well as Lizzie, played by Journey Smollett. So this story has a primary focus on Jeff as he undergoes these tests where different drugs are being administered to him to incite different emotions. Sometimes it's a very romantic response. Sometimes it is very triggering to a subject to enter a depressive state, almost entering like suicidal territory. The point of the movie is it's an exploration of what, of how these different drugs and the administration of them are affecting Jeff's understanding of what this study actually means. It's a psychological thriller. Um, 
It's under two hours, and that's always going to be a detail I think is worth mentioning when it is so. Um, and it's a book adaptation. So if you feel that that is your thing, if you want to, you know, go read the book and then attack this story head on, then I, you know, I root right for you. But um, first things first, it's a simple premise. You know, you're on this facility on an island and we're exploring the subjects, not knowing entirely, you know, more more than just the name of our antagonist in Hemsworth, Abnesty. Brandon, I'm going to have more to say about like the plot here, because I think just having read that story, I have a little bit more of insight into what's going on at the Spiderhead facility or at Abnesty's facility. But for a newcomer like yourself, how did you approach this story? And like, it's a familiar concept, right? You know, test subjects undergoing confusing experiments that don't really, you don't really know the end all be all of, but what did you think about the introduction of this and did it work for the type of plot they were introducing? Yeah. And it's also a story about like the corruption of work and like the kind of prison industrial complex and going on. Again, it's not, like you said, it's the most, it's not the most unique story in the world. I was curious to see how, Joseph Kaczynski and Miles Teller work together again after being on Top Gun Maverick and also only the Brave. They've worked together a number of times. Uh, in fact, Kaczynski brings back a couple of people working on this. Uh, Claudia Miranda, who was the cinematographer on all of his projects, come back to shoot this. Uh, I believe his same editor is on board. I could be wrong about that. Uh, and Joseph Trapanese for the score for Tron Legacy comes back to do the music for this as well. So I was coming into it thinking, oh, this is going to be a pretty solid Joseph Kaczynski kind of, you know, small, tight, compact thriller. And it is... And it kind of isn't. Uh, I enjoyed it enough. Um, it, I will cite my two big positives real quick. One, it looks great. I'm convinced at this point that Joseph Kaczynski and Claudia Miranda working together can't make a bad-looking movie. They work together on every single one of Kaczynski's movies, and they all look great, and this is no exception. Like, the way the island is shot feels so centered and isolated in the story, and then once you're actually inside, it's kind of got this a bit of like a TARDIS motif of like how everything feels bigger than it actually is. And again, it, I think it goes to enhance the idea of the prisoners of that idea that when you're stuck in a prison, everything kind of feels like the world around you when in actuality, it's this small part of an island basically. And I think the, oh God, the production designer who I just had in front of me, uh, Jeremy Hindle, who I think does wonders and kind of like you say, spreading the kind of legs of the spiders into the kind of crevices where the prisoners can explore and where they can't explore. It kind of, it builds this world that you can explore. The other thing I want to bring up is Chris Hemsworth, who we'll get to Thor later. I think he might be better in this. I think he's really good in this. And I think what's so great is that Chris Hemsworth has had an interesting career path because so often he gets pegged as, you know, the handsome buff. And he is that. And he's super talented. He can make the drama really unfold in that. That's why Rush works so well. But at the same time, between this and Bad Times at the El Royale, I want to see him play villains more. Like, he's so good at, like, getting that kind of sleaze under your skin, that sense of like, that sense of uncomfortable ease that he can make because he's so charming, but you know there's something beneath the surface and he plays it so well between the actual drug trials and then what he has to interact with uh, him and Miles Teller of Great Chemistry. I just love his performance in this. I absolutely agree with your praise for Hemsworth. I think here he is playing very, a very clean cut professional. It's an opportunity, I think, for Hemsworth as well as the others to lean into more of the... I can't call it extreme, but I want to call it like the far, the far ranges of what they can bring out of themselves. Because during these drug trials, they have to elicit emotions of like extreme distress or extreme euphoria. And I feel like we do get that distress point from a multitude of characters that I uh, stop myself to think like, oh, damn, like this actually 
this is to be challenging for our actors and to see them pull it off and me not be completely detached from it um, is worth mentioning. I felt comfortable seeing Teller once again, uh, that we mentioned before. I think he's a fun, inquisitive character in this journey. My gripe with this story, though, you know, the film adaptation is that for Jeff's character, we really do just start with him and he does not have an aha moment to propel him on his journey. If you see one, please point it out to me. But as I was watching it, I it was around the midpoint that I thought to myself, like, well, why is this happening now? Like, why... You know, there are reveals towards the end about our characters' backstories and how um, they've been afflicted by them. But I really want to know what propelled him on this journey, because as as ex- entertaining as he was to follow as a lead, I was still questioning, like, why is Lizzie still important to him? Why does he remain there um, until we get the word incarceration? Then you know that it's actually an imprisonment. I want to talk about Journey Smollett. Because I want to say that whatever casting director is out there finally watched what I'm calling a goddess in Lovecraft Country, and they felt compelled as one would to see more. Um, Was her character Lizzie entirely made up for the film adaptation? I'm telling you, absolutely. Really? Is it a different story in the third act? Yeah. Is it better? Honestly, sigh. I'm going to say it's different. Um, I'm going to pull the different card because in the middle of the movie, I was more of on the fence going, Ooh, I just, I don't know if this is winning me over, but when the third act comes, you know, it does follow that trajectory of, of a film that would be titled escape from Spiderhead. But with just the f- title being Spiderhead, I, I wonder why they dropped that escape part because it really is, you know, central to what uh, Lizzie and Jeff are able to pull off. Um, but just some of my insights there, Brandon, you know, how did you like seeing Journey Smollett return to screen? And did you feel that her character at all was out of place, knowing now that she was not in the original story? I really like seeing Journey Smollett on screen. She's cool. Um, I loved her in Birds of Prey. I've loved her in a lot. Of, I still haven't seen her in Lovecraft Country. Um, I think she and Miles Teller are serviceable in this. Uh, again, that's not to say they're bad. They're totally needed for what they do. They explore their arcs well. They have one or two really good moments, but going back to Smollett, she has a particularly great moment in the third act that I will not spoil that I think really gets to the meat of the characters that the movie doesn't really want to explore. It gets into hinting about them between conversations between Steve and Amnesty about the whole kind of, you know, oh, you were here at your own accord, but like no one here knows why they're here. And there's a bit of a mystery element in play. Uh, we should also quickly mention uh, the film was written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who are probably best known for doing the Deadpool movies. And the comedy doesn't really work. And I feel like so often the movie kind of wants to have this lighthearted undertone bubble up to the surface. And it doesn't really work, at least not for me. Not uh, at like, all, no. A lot of the drug trials, they try to make this kind of lighthearted banter with the thing. And sure, it works on the surface because, again, Chris Hemsworth is just so damn charismatic at the whole thing. But if you go even a little beneath the surface, there are a lot of really ethical questions about why this is being played for comedy. And even by the end of it, the movie kind of doesn't rectify it. It still kind of makes it this weird, wild experience down to like the editing choices, down to the soundtrack choices, which is all this kind of Guardians of the Galaxy-esque 70s throwback kind of thing. It's a very weird mix that I don't think works nearly as well as the movie does. But again, I don't think Teller or Smolder are the problem with it at all. Again, I'm going to be that guy. Uh, the original story is more of a focus about Jeff's journey while undergoing these, you know, clinical trials and having the realizations that he does. They do match what occurs in the film, but it's more of like 
a journey into oneself and, you know, what your morals actually mean, what you're able to push yourself to for the sake of work getting done. Like this is a, a situation where, you know, you harm one or you put one person, an individual through hell, essentially at the hope of saving tens, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people um, in the long run. You're right, Brandon, in saying that they make this feel like a beautiful looking film because the settings aren't, the setting here isn't spectacular, like visually, but what they're able to achieve with the set design and how they've constructed their environments. I was, I was intrigued. I was enthralled. Even when I was in a, what looks like a board operating room with just a computer board in front of Hemsworth and a two way or and a mirror right in front of the subjects that only the room only has a couch. Like how did they make that look interesting? They get a lot out of very little. And again, I think that's kind of my final point about this is that for a movie that tries so hard to get you to buy into the core humanity and the core kind of dynamics of the characters beyond like any backstory or any kind of insightful, you know, conversation, things like that. I appreciate that. But at the same time, it means that by the end of the movie where you are forced to care about these characters, it only goes so far and the actors can only do so much because at that point, again, not getting into spoilers, but by the time you do get to the main dilemma, it feels okay, yeah, if I was in these shoes, I would probably have some of the same moral questions. But at the same time, I don't feel that same kind of visceral bond to the characters, nor do I feel like the movie is kind of paced as well to let them actually be themselves. I mean, even going back to the um, to the Jeff and Lizzie dynamic, getting them to establish kind of core connections with themselves is kind of one scene in the kitchen, and then it winds up kind of phasing out through the movie, and then it, they have a connection. And it feels very rushed in that sense, even for a movie that is under two hours. I feel like it could have expanded this a little bit, but at the same time, it's tight enough. I'm not sure where I'd go with it. So take that for what you will. I'm going to move on into ratings. I'm a sucker for a third act. I mean, the third act of As Above, So Below. I mean, that's an, that's an entirely different movie, and I have so much praise for that horror film. But the third act is really what saved this score for me. Uh, started at a six, bumped it up to a seven. Seven out of ten for me on Spiderhead. I was going to say before I get my rating, did you notice that the George Saunders book is in this? Oh my gosh. When do they show it? It's, the, it's early on when, I don't know how I found this, but it's the big buff dude. He's reading the Saunders book and it's the actual book. No, I did not notice that. Okay. That's, I'm so happy they included that detail. How could you not? Like, I love Easter eggs. So thank you for pointing that one out. I'm still going to give it a six and a half. Uh, it's fine. The actual environment and stakes that are at play are solid. And I'm not saying that Kaczynski is not talented enough to do that, but I am starting to become convinced that he is sometimes biting off more than he can chew between Tron Legacy, a movie that I love, and Oblivion, a movie that I really don't, and then this, where it's like all of his kind of big idea movies don't work as well as, say, Only the Brave, which is very, you know, firefighting hoorah type thing, and Top Gun Maverick, which is very kind of primal sense of adventure and excitement and i'm starting to get the glimpse that maybe kaczynski is in a bit over his head especially when he has writing like this that is not in his corner again watch it for the production design the visuals are great and if you want a great excuse for chris hemsworth to play a villain by all means here is exhibit b after bad times of the air royale i highly recommend it for those reasons but otherwise it's probably a skip with king valkyrie riding in on a white buck i hope that you left the theater feeling thunderstruck brandon talk to us about thor love and thunder baby wrong rock band because this movie is all guns and roses all the time and we'll get to it thor love and thunder is finally here remember when we thought this movie was gonna be pushed back that was weird thor 4 is finally here which ali plum from bbc legendary referred to as the biggest mistake not calling it the four because it's the fourth Thor movie uh we pick up once again uh taika waititi returns to direct and write from thor ragnarok 
alongside, who's this co-writer? Uh, Jennifer Caton Robinson. We pick up with Thor Odinson sometime after the events of Avengers Endgame, once again played by Chris Hemsworth. He is teamed up with the Guardians of the Galaxy, or should I say kind of is the secret spiritual weapon to the Guardians. He's doing things. He's not really being there. He's kind of going about the universe, as we saw at the end of Endgame, trying to find his new purpose. Uh, someone to, you know, as they jokingly say, like, Thor, we need your help to win this battle. And he does, at time and time again, but with no real purpose. Then, uh, some things happen. Thor and... Um, Thor and his rock companion Korg, played by Watiti again, they are basically called to a bunch of distress calls. Gods are being killed across the universe by a pretender named Gore, here played by uh, Christian Bale, who has a very big backstory of his own that we may or may not get into. Um, a lot of recurring characters come back, but the biggest is uh, Jane Foster, once again now played by Natalie Portman, returning to the franchise after nine years since Thor The Dark World. Um, she is back. She's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and is now apparently worthy of Mjolnir, which Thor finds just a little bit uncomfortable that his ex-girlfriend and his ex-hammer are now reunited to seemingly be him, which is a little weird for him. Um, but needless to say, Gore comes to New Asgard. He kidnaps a bunch of children. And now it's up to Thor, Jane, Korg, and King Valkyrie, once again played by uh, Tessa Thompson, to save the children, save the universe, and discover what it means to be between a god and a man, and Asgardian, a rock creature, just to live. Uh, Noah, over to you. This movie exists, and it's a lot, and I have no idea what we're going to get into as far as discussion for this goes, but um, I guess general thoughts regarding Thor Love and Thunder? What do you think? Right? Like, why does it feel like we have to almost tiptoe to this conversation because I yeah. mean, entering the theater, I was, I was ready for the medal to be delivered with Thor love and thunder and let's enter it. So first things first, it's worth mentioning that this is the first MCU solo hero film to reach a fourth film. You know, we've traditionally only had trilogies and, um, the fact that we got Taika Waititi as a director and star in Thor Ragnarok, he returns as we all like were rallying for because of Taika Waititi, like this, this ah, legendary, I love, love his work. And this time makes a story that is centralized around Thor and his reintroduction to Jane Foster, who is now the mighty Thor and how he feels seeing a new hero as well as the wielder of Mjolnir, you know, balancing that with his slight understanding of what is happening to her without the Mjolnir wielded. Like when, she, when she's not wielding Mjolnir, it's, the cancer returns and she's very fragile. Uh, it's stage four cancer. I do have to say though, this was not what I expected. Yeah, I'm with you. This feels like, you know what it feels like? It feels like Waititi saw all, Waititi and Feige and, you know, the whole Marvel cavalcade saw what the response was to Ragnarok, mostly. I know there are people out there who don't like Ragnarok. I think they're ridiculous, but whatever. But the people who loved Ragnarok, the idea of like, oh, you know, it was hilarious. It had high stakes. It was reinventing the <clears throat> mythology. All of those things. Let's double down on all of that. For better or worse, it comes out the other end. For worse. And I will say for better or worse, because I do think there are really good things about this. There are also really bad things about this, or at the very least things that I don't agree with. And I will get the positives out of the way. Um, Natalie Portman, welcome back. You get a character. I was just going to say, Mighty Thor's hair, th that transition to blonde and those curls coming out. She looks fierce and strong and confident, but she looked that when she was Jane Foster. Now as Mighty Thor, it's just all those things tenfold. And it was lovely just to get Portman like right next to uh, Thompson and Hemsworth 
having this kind of hero, superhero uh, position with them. That itself was just badass when the three of them could share a screen and each hold their own against whatever threat they were facing. As a rom-com in space, I think it works better than a for Thor movie. I think it works better if you view it through the lens of Thor and Jane's relationship and kind of how that affects the people around them, how it affects themselves, how it affects their ideas of future. And in that sense, it does kind of work. It's only when you add the spectacle of being a superhero comic movie that you wind up having to get more and more things shoved in there and we might get to it. But I will say, I do genuinely think that Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman have really fun chemistry in this. There is a montage that goes into most of what has been happening to them in the last nine years or so. Um, and it's actually really fun. Like it made me want to see like an interim short film between the two. It, it kind of reminded me of like, oh, this is what the first two Thor's film, the first two Thor films were kind of missing was that sense of vibrant electricity that so often was just, oh God, look how muscly he is. And Thor being like, look how curious you are. And now it's more than that. And it's cool. And then you add in Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie, who is just awesome. But beyond just being awesome, she gets to kind of play this mediary bind between the two. Korg is just basically the comic relief in this movie, and that's fine for what he is, but Valkyrie gets to actually be kind of the intermediary that allows them to kind of push back towards each other. And I kind of, again, going back to that three dynamic, beyond the fact they're just awesome in the action scenes, I love how they get to play off of one another. Positives out the way first, like you say, um, much like the relationship between Dr. Stephen Strange and his cape, uh, this movie introduces a dynamic between Thor and his current weapon, um, Stormbreaker. Stormbreaker, his axe, as well as um, his like strained relationship, his exes um, with his hammer Mjolnir. And so it really personifies the hammer and gives for a lot of hilarious moments to occur between the two. Um, I think that that was one of the standout like comedic moments for me. There's more positives to come, but I just have to get some things off my chest, which is one. I think this film really reduced how focused Thor is on like, big threats and his place in the world as Thor. Like I, I felt that watching Valkyrie on screen, I still felt that kind of confidence and that kind of intentional leadership that was all, that was what her journey was, I think about in Thor Ragnarok. And so now to see her realize and to see her uh, leading new Asgard, even if it's in hilarious ways with, um, you know, going fully commercial and having like a cruise ship show up, even then we still have a lot of that energy just exuberating off of Thompson. But for Hemsworth's character, Thor, it wasn't the same. Like I, I don't feel that this is the God of thunder. One of its low points for me was when he goes to Omnipotent City, a city where many pantheons of gods uh, That's come. We're introduced to like the massive pantheons of the Marvel Universe. We're introduced to the pantheons of the universe, but it doesn't feel like that. This film feels like it's trying to pull and place that comedic appeal from Hemsworth, who is who has it. You know, he has that but it's placing it too much to a point where I felt that the beginning involving the guardians of the galaxy didn't do much to tell more of this story. It kind of just added in 15 or 10 minutes of Peter and, or sorry, of Thor and Quill having their back and forth that we all adored, you know, seeing in infinity war. And even uh, beyond, I'm sorry, even beyond that, like the promise we got at Endgame of just like now Thor's joining the guardians, what's going to happen. We get it in maybe three minutes. Yeah, I thought Mantis had a great shining moment there. I thought Nebula was was great. Uh, I don't think Drax says much. Uh, the film tries to do something with screaming goats that I think works once, 
yeah. maybe twice, but it happens about 12 more times. And I got to say, I'm not, I'm not the kind of watcher that like wants those moments to last longer. Uh, and then let's go into Thor versus his threat. I've always felt that Thor knew what his agenda was when his enemy was in front of him, whether that was escaping the, the battle arena that exists in Ragnarok, you know, facing off Thor, um, escaping from Loki, um, him against the dark elves in Thor too. If I remember the dark world, like it always just felt to me that Thor knew who his enemy was and who his threat was in this film. We are set up to believe that it's going to be Gore, the God butcher who butchers one God on screen. And then uh, the rest of the kills happen off screen. Christian Bale is another topic of conversation we can discuss right after this, but here Thor's threats are, you know, the destruction of all gods. If Gore reaches eternity, another, another God, but also Thor versus himself and his own kind of like humility when it comes to respecting the mighty Thor's presence and Jane becoming this hero and him being able to see beyond the fact that like he's, she's the one that got away. Like she's uh, his last relationship that ended because of his absence. And I don't know, the balance of the two did not feel like this was a uh, connected film. Like there were moments where I was just like, oh yeah, we're still telling the story of Thor and Jane of, oh yeah, no, no, no. Gore is still on the run. Like Gore is still capturing these children and he's the big, like we have to propel ourselves toward him. Um, Omnipotent city where we have the collection of all the gods that scene plays out as if it's like a, you know, jump in, grab the artifact and go and making it almost like entirely comedic. Like Russell Crowe's Zeus. Oh my gosh. He was just like he a, doing a thing. He was doing a thing and the film sets him up to do that thing. I don't want to bash this point to a pulp, but it just wasn't the movie I had expected. I will keep on the positive train for a second. I think Christian Bale is great. Not good. He's great in this. Maybe even one of the best. Yeah, definitely post-Infinity War villains, if not just villains in the MCU, totally. Um, I think he completely embodies the tragedy of Gore, but the kind of maniacal, twisted nature of who Gore is. But at the same time, the movie doesn't really let him do that. You mentioned how early on we get to see maybe one god killed off screen. This movie has a bad fake death problem in that it really tries to get you attached and then we'll do that, and then doesn't. And because you have a threat as big as Gore, you can't do that and then just not have a body count. It feels like the movie is so concerned with being lighthearted and joking and being like, aha, isn't this all weird? Like, yes, but the reason Ragnarok worked and for me worked so great, there was an underlining sense of tragedy and clear stakes about it. Asgard is screwed if you don't get back to this. And there's a timetable on it. There's definitive like pacing and everything. And here... The stakes are, or at least should be, between Thor and Jane. And when they get to focus on that, it's fun and charming and actually has some kind of depth going back to that first Thor movie that kind of revitalizes the sense of, you mentioned humility, and I would also mention Jane's sense of pride. Like, those things coming together really works. But then you have the universe-ending stakes that go against that, and it doesn't really tie in. And it also goes to a big negative of mine that we might get to, which is that the end stake of gore, I really don't think works. And I can't talk about it without going into spoilers. Another point I have to get out is I love the queerness of this movie. I love that we have yeah. King Valkyrie now um, 
speaking openly about all of her past lovers and having them being women, some of her Valkyrie sisters that had fallen in battle uh, to a point where Gore like is able to get inside her head and pull out these low points of these characters. That is why Gore is so menacing. Gore is so frightening in this film. Bale does knock it out of the park, especially when they put in those glowing contacts or like when they accentuate his eyes and he's talking to these kids literally looks like Pennywise in the freaking sewer gate, like the sewer, uh, uh, the crack in the street <laughs> that leads to the sewer. Um, and then Korg giving Korg a backstory that is all about his species um, being like uh, exclusively male and like forming rock babies by holding hands over some, over some lava. That is just hilarious and absolutely queer. So I was, I was totally here for all of the gay stuff that was going on. On the one hand, I'm a little disappointed when Natalie Portman was like, look how gay this movie is going to be. And it's not that gay. Like, it's not that gay. They don't show a lot of it. There's not a whole lot of stuff. A lot of the scenes but in the trailer that kind of made a point out are taken out of the movie. But then we do get like the core backstory, which is like, oh, that's really cool. And going into that mythology and actually developing a bit more. So I thought that was cool. But then there's also the Valkyrie stuff where we only hear about it. We never actually see any of it. There's never like a picture or a flashback or anything. It's always just meant to be for the actors. And luckily, Tessa Thompson and Christian Bale are great. But I wanted more. I think that there was something to be said about Heimdall's son, Reinst- like yes. reinstating um, his Astrid idea. played Astrid. by uh, Kieran Dyer. Astrid, is it formerly known as Astrid turned Axel or the other way around? Astrid who becomes Axel because Guns and Roses is a big deal in this movie. Because Guns and Roses, baby. But I think that that was serving to a bigger point of like recognizing your identity and and like really owning it and making those around you own it too. I think, Brandon, it's time to use Stormbreaker and chop this ribbon in half and venture into spoiler territory. If you want to, I will put the rating thing, uh, the rating timestamp at the end. Just for the next few minutes, we just have to guide into it. So you have been more. We have to. That's right. And we know we've been going long. We'll try and keep this wrap-up conversation on spoilers pretty short. But first things first, I'm going to say this. Brandon, why the hell do we bestow a camp full of children with Thor's powers as if it was something that could just happen and then act like that montage? was was, I thought it was not. (laughs) I was here to see Mighty Thor and Thor and Valkyrie and to give us all of these kids and to introduce a parental figure in Thor works for who? Works for what viewer i don't know what they were doing is this like a mando thing did this start back in logan like do they just want to give these heroes a father type role i don't get it please help me brandon help me help me think about this first of all that scene is awesome stop it um even though it's you know bunnies launching lightning and you know all this really cool stuff it doesn't match i completely get it and the next subject is going to be, of course, please, please, if you've already like let this play in the background, run to your phone or computer and skip past this, please. We introduce Jane. We bring her back as the mighty Thor. And at the film's close, she's dead. Brandon, talk to me. It's a good death. It's um, a, it's a good death. I'll agree with you death. there. Actions she makes to bring about that death seem completely intentional and completely like, uh, the setup for it, right? The anticipation of that moment. I was there. I was with them. And then we have the slow send off in what looks like Hawkeye receive Hawkeye and Thanos receives a soul stone, like that place where it's a dimension. Oh, yeah. It's just water. Um, and we meet the God eternity where Gore makes his final wish. There's a moment between Thor and Jane there that I think is there, even with Thor's communication to Gore about what to save and what to not and whatnot. He- 
here's my thing is that it goes back to my kind of bouncing ball back and forth with this movie of like, I think the scene between Thor, Jane and Gore is great because it's mm. that idea of, you know, Gore being the villain of like, I'm going to end the universe, like end all of you. And Thor's like, cool, I'm going to go over here with the one person who still cares about me and actually like take her hand as she dies. Like I thought that was super beautiful. And like, there's again, the charm between Portman and Hemsworth is really there. It doesn't negate any of that. My problem is that at the end of the day, there's that thing of like, oh, you know, Gore, you didn't want to kill all the gods. You just wanted your daughter back. And I'm like, but no, because he didn't just want his daughter back. He clearly wanted the gods to pay. And my whole thing is just like, oh, so the abusive gods who are abusive in this movie to a fault, aside from Thor, basically, basically get no repercussions. And at the end of the day, Thor just winds up with a kid, which is fine, but it feels contradictory to like the messaging that the movie is trying to get across let alone Jason Aaron's comic, which was a big inspiration for this movie. It just feels like the messiest message of the movie coming through in that scene. Did you believe that Jane was going to be corrupted by the Necrosword when those pieces started to meld with Mjolnir? That would have been cool. Yo, because that's all I saw. And I was like, it's going to be Thor versus corrupted mighty Thor. And he's going to have to make the sacrifice for the things he loves. No! Shakespeare! I think one final thing to note is the introduction of a new character into the MCU, like very hilariously not death of Zeus at the close of the omnipotent city scene. And so when Zeus returns on screen, he is speaking to in the same vein of uh, it, maybe it was the guardians Two movie, but I'm not sure where the Mycenaean uh, leader introduced Adam here. Zeus brings in a new hero to enter the MCU in Hercules. So we have Wait. Hercules joining. It's, it doesn't speak volumes for what's to come. It just kind of teases a character that may or may not show up in the next two years of MCU. But that being said, we still haven't got Adam. So we'll have to be patient. But hey, you got Hercules. Played by none other than Ted Lasso's Brett Goldstein. Ooh, unfortunately, I would not know that reference. Fair enough. I don't watch Ted Lasso either. But I, I will say quickly, it was funny because I didn't know who it was at first. I was like, Bradley Cooper? He's buff. He's gay. I can't wait to see it. And I'm talking about Hercules. Like, that's going to be amazing. And there are versions of comic Hercules where he is gay. So he very well could be. All right. Let's move on to our ratings and just get it off of this. Uh, That spoiler discussion was a lot. Um, For me, again, I really, really hate to do this because I really do love the first Thor movie. Dark World is eh. Ragnarok was fantastic. Thor Love and Thunder is probably a five and a half. Because for as good as the performances are, and I do think they are good, for as distinct as Taika Waititi's vision is, and I do think it is distinct, for all of that thing, it is just a mess of a story. It doesn't really know what it wants to frame it as. There are too many questions that are left unanswered that we really need answered for stakes like this. It doesn't feel as defined or structured. And I'm not going to say like, oh God, it's the fall of Taika Waititi, because I know people are already saying that online. Uh, no, I do think this is fine. And even as far as like the worst of the MCU, I would take that other over other the best of certain other directors but it is still a mess i don't think i can really recommend it beyond like diehard mcu fans and that's really disappointing this film is going to be a six and a half for me um worth a rewatch i'm not sure beyond the scenes with mighty thor just to again witness that transformation of jane foster into mighty thor but am i watching this to see chris hemsworth continue his run as Thor. I don't know if it has any, any notable redeeming scenes for his character there, um, but I'm definitely watching for the women, King Valkyrie and Jane Foster. I am a fan. 
All right, that's going to close our new movie portion of reviews on this episode. And I think that we need to get into some TV because... Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, my God, Brandon. Brandon, do you think son of... Okay, you know what? They got me. Fine, fine. Settle down, settle down. Get in your seats. These guys... We will talk about Minions, The Rise of Gru. I'm ready to regrew this because it's grew and it's... Yes, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go ahead and wrap that up. So we, we are gonna give you an abridged version of our review for, uh, Minions, The Rise of Gru. I think Brandon and I entered this episode, uh, with kind of, you know, like emotions and thoughts for we this. We owe it, to, we owe it to those who did the gentle minion screening who follow the TikToks. We, we are here for you. That is absolutely right. So I'm going to introduce this story. You know, we got the first Minions movie. This is going to be the sequel. We are exploring a pre-teen tween Gru and his adorable inventions that look so great just uh, being executed with that illumination style of animation. But this film primarily focuses on his interest in what's called the Vicious Six. It's like this super... Uh, group of villains that exist in his world and he wants to be a member of them after they kick out one of their members named White Knuckles. Um, that is probably only about 30% of the story. Gru's infatuation with this group, his application and of course interview of joining this supervillain group. Uh, and then it places primary focus on a relic known as the Zodiac Stone. Like I said, 30% of the movie is going to be Gru's infatuation with this supervillain group and his uh, interactions with them. And then we have... 70% of the movie being these little yellow creatures who uh, speak like a little bit of Italian and a little bit of French, a little bit of Spanish, and mostly just say and are infatuated by the word banana. Uh, they're all yellow. They all have varying styles of overalls and goggles with one or two eyeballs. Uh, they have no noses, which is actually like played into the story, and I admired that. But um, I can't watch it for very long when the minions are on screen. And, and I know, you know, again, this is, this is me recycling a comment I made for Lightyear, grown man watching this movie, okay? But, uh, now we've all read the title. We know that it's a Minions film. And I'll tell you right now, it is very that. So if the Minions are your cup of tea and you want it piping hot, served with a little bit of oat milk in there, ooh, delicious. You know, I think early reactions online, I saw everybody saying that you have to watch this with a group of friends. You have to experience this with people that you love because of the overall message of, you know, having your own clan. I'm not really sure, but I went with my little bro. He had a hell of a time watching it. I think I had nice. more fun just seeing him laugh and feel joy and really be entertained by these little yellow uh, nuggets on screen. Um, the film has uh, exciting performances, I think, Alan Arkin as Wild Knuckles, Taraji P. Henson as Bell Bottom, Julie Andrews as Gru's mom. The list goes on. I think there are a lot of like standout like actor names that at the film's credit or actually the film's opening is another good point for me because it has a sort of Bond-esque feel to it with the minions, uh, you know, darting across screen being completely like shadows here. And it's the it's the title cards of all of the actors that I think will excite you for what you're about to see. I think I've said what I needed to say on it. If you were invested in Illumination's style of animation, then you will have so many new visuals to experience here. Um, if the minions are your cup of tea, you're like I said, you're going to get a healthy dose in this movie, heavy dose in this movie. But for my review, um, out of three minions, I'll probably give it one minion with goggles with one eye. So that is my rating. I've never hated the minions. 
I've hated the oversaturation of the minions. I've hated the over-reliance on minions from Illumination, but those are bigger issues in the franchise itself. Like, I literally did a 10th anniversary review of the first Despicable Me movie, and yeah, the minions are super endearing in that, and I think they've continued to be for at least some time at some points. Rise of Gru exists. Uh, the minions do fun things. I thought the whole, uh, there's a plane landing sequence that you see in the trailer. That was kind of fun. Uh, Michelle Yao makes it out pretty fun with the whole uh, Kung Fu training sequence. This has been a very weird year for Michelle Yao, by the way, between this and everything everywhere. Um, I still like the the animation from Illumination. You know, it's colorful, it's vibrant, it's distinct from anything really. But at the same time, I didn't laugh a lot. Um, I think the movie wants me to laugh a lot, and I really, really didn't. There's stuff between like um, uh, between Gru and Alan Arkin's character that's supposed to be kind of this really fun found father figure type relationship. And again, if you're a big fan of the franchise and you remember the estrangement between Gru and his mom, great. Otherwise, it's just it's there, and Alan Arkin is kind of sleepwalking through the whole thing. I think the stars again of this are the meetings themselves. The actual physical comedy is fun. They they try to give them more of a personality to the auto who's kind of the overachiever who gets a kind of fun subplot of his own and just kind of uh, tricycling to find this weird amulet to get the crew. It's the whole thing. Uh, honestly, the biggest star of this movie is the soundtrack um, with collaborations for everyone from uh, Phoebe Bridgers to Tame Paula and Diana Ross to Jack Antonoff executive producing the whole thing. There's a lot of misses on there. I don't know why Brockhampton is on there, but like a lot of the other collabs are really, really good. And I think it's a lot of 70s covers that really work. Overall, yeah, it's great for families. And if you're, you know, one of the people on TikTok who is dying to, you know, exuberate their class by going to see this, who are either of us to stop you, I think go and have a time with this. There is stuff here to find, but it is still a Minions movie. And moreover, it's a Minions sequel that doesn't really know what to do with itself, even between its time frame, its characters, or really anything. Now, my movie theater had some children in there, and um, they weren't laughing. <laughs> no, they were laughing. They were laughing. Um, was the, minions, the Minions are a lot of randomness. And as much as that randomness can be entertaining, I more so was just questioning, like, okay, where, where are they doing? What are they doing? And I wish, I, although I love Michelle Yeoh, of course, of course we do. We praise yeah, everything everywhere, well, every, everywhere all at once. I was waiting for that Kung Fu scene to end because then I knew the story would keep going. I was okay. Now, now let's, let's, let's get it going. It's our 27 minutes. Why do I feel like I'm like, I'm needing. And then they bring in a supernatural element that doesn't even tie into who the minions are. Like if anything, you use that to explain why they're so weird, but no, a lot of thoughts here on the podcast. We are now moving into our final segment. I know it's so sad to see us winding things down, but we have one show to cover. It is a beloved show on this podcast that we all enjoyed. We are discussing the first uh, two or three episodes. You know, we're really just introducing season two uh, plot details, some of uh, the notable standout, whether it be performances or whether it be, um, you know, some of the technological appeal. I just think that there's something to discuss about Hulu's uh, latest episode release for this new season. We should very quickly mention just some uh, ground to cover the whole thing. Steve Martin, Martin Short, and uh, Stilly Gomez all return from past seasons. A lot of other supporting characters play into there as well. We follow up immediately after season two. Uh, they are processed for seemingly, like, actually, you know what, quick thing. We are spoiling season one. So if you have not seen that, please just stay away. Come back to this when you're comfortable. He also say spoilers over that Buddy died. And apparently Mabel has been framed and so have the other guys. So they go to the police station. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph is back as the detective was great once again she basically tells him like look you're not you're getting framed for this you're not actually going to jail but just stay out of trouble and of course 
they can't help themselves. In addition to basically just trying to find out who Bunny's actual murderer is, we have each character going on journeys of their own. Uh, Brazos, once again played by Steve Martin, has been approached to do a Brazos reboot, where the star is a young African-American woman as his niece. Oliver gets an offer from Amy Schumer, of all people, who has now moved into Sting's vacant apartment. Uh, from the first season, she wants to approach the Only Murders podcast as a miniseries, which Oliver, of course, jumps at the chance to potentially produce and star in, essentially alongside Timothy Chalamet, maybe, maybe not. Um, uh, and Mabel gets involved in her artwork. She meets a art dealer played by Cara Delevingne, who may or may not have some feelings for her, and there may be some slimy shit going on. We'll see. Uh, but Noah, going over to you, like I think we all had the same reaction of like Only Murder Season 1 was a delight. And I kind of felt like the first two episodes, and I only got to the first two, I know you got to all three. Did you think kind of the same, that we're right back where we left off? Brandon, absolutely. Like, this is my new comfort show. Like, it, it knocks out Drag Race, which I had been so enthralled by in the past weeks. But now I'm reminded of all those feelings that I felt watching season one, where you and I, we have this beautiful baby in our Plot Devices podcast. The trio on Only Murders in the Building have their podcast. And so to hear them have their back and forth and to have Martin Short again, Oliver constantly like feigning authenticity, just, just to pull out his recorder in his pocket. Like those are all moments I think that really shine for the characters in the first season and they're being repeated like in, in the best of ways. Like they're not, it doesn't feel like it's just being recycled in for laughs. The, the writing is still so intelligent and witty. Um, I love the changes that we get into Mabel's character the expansion of Brazos's like uh show presence but this time being kind of like the comedic relief instead of the serious actor he's always wanted to be portrayed by it works so well for this cast of of just goofy people like fumbling their way through a murder case and that's exactly what happens in these first three episodes they are genuinely fumbling into these clues and uh whether it's like a uh it's bunny's parrot that, that is speaking you know what have you's at them that have them connect the pieces or it's um is it teddy yeah or, or it's no, 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 no uh, uh howard howard lost his cat teddy's nathan lane apologies or it's howard discussing like his disinterest in the trio but like he's the nosy neighbor who wants to know more because these are three murder suspects that we know i mean at least i think that we know that they are not the perpetrators the suspects of bunny's death however all of these new characters that come in you mentioned cara delavine we have amy schumer joining the cast who is there. She actually plays herself, Amy Schumer, and has a relationship with Martin Short in the sense of wanting to expand and build onto the podcast that they have. And Tina Fey uh, returning as her character, who was first working like with them in the first season, I believe, but now is continuing her series, criminalizing them, like uh, pointing the finger at them and trying to conduct real-time interviews throughout these early episodes. And, and it all just fits so well. It all is completely only murders in the building rather than like Tim Kono's, you know, the ring, the, the who was he working for? Like those kind of details that sure. propelled, propelled the first season. This time it, we, we stay in that kind of like high art space, I guess, because now there's an erotic piece of art that is connected to Brazos and or connected to um, Charles in some way. Uh, once you experience the show, you'll realize what I'm talking about. But now it's like, who owned that art piece? Well, how did it get from here to there? Oh, why is there a secret channel between here and there? What was the 
architect of this building's life like and so it's pulling it's pulling stuff out of its pockets that i i could never imagine for the series myself i'm not that kind of writer and i have praise for the creators of this show uh the three the trio lead uh give amazing performances i do miss oscar aaron dominguez's character from the first season but yeah here's the here's the hope when he comes back i'm just thankful he wasn't dead at the close of that first season but we'll get there and we get we get the little tease at the end of episode two where Mabel's like, oh yeah, he, he's there. We're just not really talking at the moment. So it's like, he's definitely coming back at some point. Um, but I hope so. Um, as far as like, yeah, the main trio are just so good. And whoever put them, I would love to know the casting director for this because whoever put Steve Martin and Martin Short in the same room and then said, you know what we need? Selena Gomez. I was like, you kidding? And they actually did it. And it was amazing. And somehow it has continued to be amazing. And the actual dynamic, you're right, has completely shifted. Like, Charles is much more independent. He's much more sure of himself now. And that's kind of investing in more of his comedy, yes, but also more of just where he's going outside of the group. So much so that Oliver and Mabel kind of get left to deal with a lot of the podcasting stuff, which I think is a really interesting dynamic because Oliver and Mabel are complete opposites and Charles is kind of somewhere in the middle. So it's an interesting kind of flip of the dynamic and everything. Uh, Amy Schumer is a weird presence in the show, I'll fully admit. Um, I'm not sure why we needed her specifically, but I get the idea behind it. And I get that Amy Schumer's persona kind of translates into how you view her character in the show. But again, the whole thing just feels a bit weird off the cup. But again, it, it works for what it is. I'm not entirely sure. I will say the whole art piece heist thing is very interesting. Uh, the stuff with kind of the backstory of Charles's father and how, you know, Bunny's mom kind of plays in the whole thing. The history of the building. There's a lot of backstory that's playing into this that... I wasn't expecting them to go really, and I probably should have been, but I'm really welcoming it. It is paced so wonderfully. I think it really that we is. can speak on the closings of episode one, the closings of episode two. They feel so like rewarding for your time spent with the episode. Like you're not getting a build up to something that is never going to pay off. I think H episode shows you all you need to remain invested. And I don't think I've spoken to someone who's watched the show and said, oh, it's not for me or like, eh, like mid, you know, this show really does have that appeal that I think blasts across different demographics, different audiences. Um, and the music that like, if you listen to the oh, little yeah. tunes as we transition between scenes, like any kind of sound that I'm hearing, I'm just enthralled by, like, it just further brings me into their world. And it is a particular world. And I'm thankful for that. Only murders exists in only murders in their building. I'm so glad, like Siddhartha Kozla should be applauded for his work on this. Like it, it just has this really great sense of Middle Eastern harpsichord-esque vibes mixed with kind of traditional indie pop sensibilities. And it just works for the vibe. Like feel like you're part of that high world, but not necessarily so high up that you can't see anything. It, it's this weird mix of mentalities that just allows anyone to really focus in on it. And you mentioned the pacing, just the half an hour episodes are just so tight. They fit so much into it but it never feels like a joke is wasted or an interaction is wasted. Even when you know there's probably a ton of improvisation going on on set, even then it just flows so naturally and they know exactly where this is going. Only Murders in the Building is premiering week by week on Hulu. The first three episodes are, as we're recording this out now, uh, probably you'll have uh, episodes four and five, which will be out uh, in the next couple weeks, which we will be hopefully getting to you at some point. And again, the first season is all available on Hulu as well. And for whatever reason, you have not watched that season and just want to check it out yourself. That'll do it for episode 31 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning in. As always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Plot Devices Pod. That's Instagram and Twitter at Plot Devices Pod, as well on TikTok 
one other real thing, uh, directorial debuts. We are wrapping up our season zero pilot season of all that. Many reviews from directors such as Matt Reeves, D. Reese, Brad Bird, and Alice Wu. The last one should be out by the time you're listening to this. Hopefully you can tune into all of those and then give us suggestions again on our social media about what season one will actually be. I want to go over to once again, Noah Guzman. Noah, anything going on in your life and anything people should be following? Before the next episode, I will be watching... Well, we will both be covering Nope, that is Jordan Peele's latest returning to theaters. And that is going to be, I think, a brain blaster of a movie. Uh, but otherwise, no, I don't have anything necessarily that I need to plug here. I'm just excited to get more content out on our socials and really just, you know, do the legwork, do the hard work to try and uh, amp up those profiles. So give us a follow, give us a like, share our profiles. You know, we really appreciate every one of those. Thank you for listening always. And you guys can find both of our work as well on ESU Odyssey Online. Just check it out there for all of our latest reviews. I will hopefully be having my mid-year list of 2022 be coming out in the next week or so by the time you're hearing this, so stay tuned for that, along with potentially a couple other things. You can follow me on social media at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. You can follow my band, Cablebox, as well at Cablebox underscore music. But we do have a gig coming up at the end of the month, uh, July 26th. We know it's going to be. I'll have more details for you, uh, again, on those social media channels. And once again, Bot Devices, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Give us a follow, give us a rating, it helps out a lot, and follow us on all the social medias. My name is Brandon King, that has been Yellow Guzman, this has been episode 31 of Plot Devices. I'll catch you guys next time.